I now can sing since I've been redeemed. I'm on the everlasting, everlasting rock. I faith in Christ, my Redeemer King. I'm on the everlasting, everlasting rock. This is the voice of hope. Rejoice, ye pure in heart. Rejoice, ye thanks and sing. Your first Thank you, choir. Are you one of the pure in heart that the choir sang about? I hope your answer is yes. And if your answer is no, I'm glad to tell you that you can become pure in heart. I'm J. Mark Horst, the Bible teacher on The Voice of Hope, and I welcome you to stay with me as we continue our study in Mark's Gospel. This program, The Voice of Hope, is produced by Heralds of Hope. We're an international media ministry sharing the gospel around the world in English and 25 other languages. We use all forms of media, radio, internet, social media, and print to share the good news of Jesus Christ with people living all over the world. And all of this is made possible by the prayers and the financial support of people just like you. So to learn how you can help, visit our website, heraldsofhope.org. Now, to prepare for my teaching, I encourage you to get your Bible in hand or open the app on your phone so you can follow along with me as I read our text in a few minutes. In this episode of our study from Mark's Gospel, we'll be looking at Mark chapter 2 and verses 18 to 22. And the title of my teaching is The Gospel Paradigm. Recently, I came across the story of a famous Japanese criminal. His name was Takichi Ishii, and he was born in the 1870s and was executed for his crimes in the year 1918. It's said that he was cruel beyond measure. He was like a wild animal, and he had no pity for his victims. Without any pricking of his conscience, he brutally murdered men and women and children during his career of crime. Eventually, he was arrested and in prison. And while he was in prison, two Christian ladies visited him. They happened to have a regular ministry in the prison where he was being held. But he refused to even speak to them. He just glared at them, 
He looked like a cornered wild beast. As they were leaving one day, they gave him a copy of the Bible. They had very little hope that he would even read it. But you know something? He did read it. And when he read the story of the crucifixion of Jesus, it broke through that hard heart and changed his life forever. And so on the day that the jailer came to lead him to his execution, he expected to find a surly, hardened brute of a man. But what he found was a smiling, radiant man, because Ishi, the murderer, had been born again. The evidence of his rebirth was a smiling countenance and proof that a life that is lived in Christ is a life that's characterized by joy. I had never heard about this story before, and I was so intrigued by the little bit that I read that I went right to the internet and bought a paperback copy. And I'm looking forward to reading it. You know, the characteristic of joy is central to the portion of Scripture that we're going to study today. The text before us is Mark chapter 2 and verses 18 to 22. And I've titled our study, The Gospel Paradigm. So listen carefully now as I read this Scripture portion, Mark chapter 2 and verses 18 through 22. The disciples of John and of the Pharisees were fasting. Then they came and said to him, Why do the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old, and the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. Jesus' interaction with his critics in this text unveils for us several important elements in the gospel paradigm. The first element in the gospel paradigm is the presence of the bridegroom. This first element is introduced in the context of fasting. The law only required one fast, and that was on the Day of Atonement, once a year. That fast was associated with repentance and with confession of sin. It was a way for the people to show their humility before God. But by the time of Jesus' earthly ministry, the Pharisees had designated the Monday and Thursday of each week as fast days. You might recall how in Luke's Gospel, that proud Pharisee was praying in the temple, and he reminded the Lord how he fasted twice a week and gave tithes of everything. Later on, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees, not because they were fasting, but because they were fasting to gain the praise of men. Well, at any rate, John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees were fasting, and Jesus and his disciples were not fasting. And so they said, Why do the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not? Now, keep in mind, this criticism comes in the context of where Jesus is reclining at the table with Levi and the other tax collectors. And I think it's possible, perhaps even likely, that Levi's great feast that he gave for his friends fell on one of those designated feast days 
of Monday or Thursday. As he so often did, Jesus responded to the question of his critics with a question of his own. He said to them, Do the sons of the bridegroom fast as they rejoice with the bridegroom? Now the sons of the bridegroom were not groomsmen as we think of them. Instead, they were the wedding guests. And Jewish customs exempted wedding guests from most religious observations, and that included the weekly fast days. Now, as I understand the practices of the time, the newlywed couple didn't go on a honeymoon. Instead, they stayed at home for a week, and during that time, their house was open for constant feasting and celebration. And you know, for most people in that era of time, physical existence was a struggle. So the wedding week could end up being the happiest time of a couple's life. It certainly was not an appropriate time for fasting. A wedding isn't a time for sorrow, it's a time for great joy. Jesus didn't wait for the Pharisees to answer his question. He knew that they knew what the right answer was. But who is the bridegroom in Jesus' question? It's Jesus, and it's no more appropriate for his followers to fast while he's here than it is for wedding guests to fast at an earthly marriage celebration. Fasting and prayer are not needed in relation to a God who is present. Even a casual reading of the Old Testament prophets, like Isaiah and Hosea and others, reveals this concept of God's covenant relationship with Israel as a marriage. Jesus came to be Israel's bridegroom, their husband, their Messiah. This was to be a time of joy and gladness. But we know what happened. The nation of Israel as a whole rejected him and they put him to death. You know, Jews today still believe that there will be a time of feasting when Messiah comes. And we read about the great marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 9. Of course, Jesus knew that his people would reject him and put him to death. So he went on to say, But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away, and then they will fast in that day. The words taken away signify a sudden and violent removal. This seems to be the first allusion to Jesus' death in the Gospels. I believe the central issue of Mark chapter 2 is this, who decides the proper way to approach God? For the disciples of John and the Pharisees, fasting was a religious duty. In their minds, it was a way to impress God with their piety. It was a way to gain his favor and his acceptance. In their belief and practice, you had to clean up your life before you came to God. You had to make yourself worthy of his acceptance. God would only accept the righteous, the pious, the clean. But Jesus turned that idea on its head. He reached out to sinners right where they were and transformed them from the inside out. He showed them that a relationship with him was characterized by joyful obedience. You see, keeping the law is a duty. Living in the presence of the bridegroom is a delight. And so I ask you, have you found that delight? The presence of the bridegroom is the first element of the gospel paradigm. And even though you and I are now waiting for the bridegroom to return, we rejoice in the presence of the Holy Spirit. There's another element in the gospel paradigm, and it is the new robe of righteousness. In the final two verses of our text, Jesus introduces two analogies, 
Some commentators refer to them as parables. And Jesus uses these to illustrate the paradigm shift from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. Those two analogies are clothing and wine. Now, clothing and wine were two very important elements in a Jewish wedding. You'll recall that John's Gospel records Jesus' first miracle. It was what? It was at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And what did he do? He turned the water into wine. And then in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus made what seems to us to be a very harsh judgment on a man who was a wedding guest, but he wasn't wearing the proper clothing. What we have to understand is that in that context, it meant that the man had refused an appropriate wedding garment that was offered to him. He was going to attend the wedding on his own terms. Oh my, that sounds so much like today, doesn't it? So Jesus takes a common physical object and he infuses it with spiritual meaning. Now because they were handmade, cloth and clothing were expensive back then compared to today. The fabrics back then were primarily wool and linen, and they were a lot different than our modern fabrics. Common people only had one or two sets of clothing. Imagine that. And it had to last a long, long time. So everyone listening to Jesus understood the foolishness of trying to patch an old garment with new cloth. Because if someone does that, when the garment is washed, the new patch shrinks and it will tear the threads of the old garment, the threads around the tear. And that eventually makes the tear worse and ends up making the garment unusable. Jesus made it clear that he didn't come to repair the old cloth of the law. It was a garment that was wearing out. The writer of Hebrews put it this way, In that he says, A new covenant he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. That's Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 13. A sinner can't be patched up and made whole. He must be recreated. According to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, he must become a new creation in Christ. So Jesus wasn't interested in patching the old system of righteousness that was based on external rule following, and it was riddled with the tares of hypocrisy. Remember, Jesus said, I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And he did that. He came to provide internal and external harmony between God and man. One must exchange the old garments of righteousness that were measured by religious practice for the new robe of Christ's righteousness that is measured by the new commandment to love others just like Jesus does. Now I do realize that there's a certain level of comfort in having a set standard by which to live. In my way of thinking, for a church congregation to have a covenant that spells out their agreed-upon beliefs and practices can be a very positive thing. But there's a danger, and the danger is that the guidelines can become the standard of what is acceptable, rather than the Holy Spirit of God working in the life of the believer. One can mistakenly believe that because they meet a set of external guidelines, that they're in good standing with God. You see, that was the mindset of the Pharisees. They had it all spelled out. What we really need is a new heart and a new mind or a new mindset. And that's why Jesus prefaced his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount with these words, You have heard that it has been said, but I say to you. And so he moved us as his followers 
from accountability for our actions to accountability for our thoughts and even our motives. So how we live under the righteousness of Christ isn't a free-for-all. We can't do whatever we want to. Well, I guess we can, but that's not what freedom in Christ means. When we enter into Christ's righteousness, we are given his nature, and so we will strive to live in a way that pleases him and not ourselves. If you and I genuinely love Jesus, we will obey his commandments, and we will not find them to be a burden. We will embrace the covering of the robe of Christ's righteousness. And then another element in the gospel paradigm is the new wine of the Spirit. In the second analogy or parable, Jesus refers to the gospel as new wine. And again, his audience understood his point exactly in the natural sense. But you see, Jesus wanted to move them beyond the natural into the spiritual. I understand Jesus to say, that you can't put the new wine of the Spirit in the old wineskins of the law. That's because there was no elasticity in the law. It was fixed. It was rigid. And so trying to incorporate the new wine of the Spirit into the aging wineskin of the law would be courting disaster. Now, let's go back for a minute to the miracle at Cana of Galilee when Jesus turned the water into wine. Those six water pots that were sitting there filled with water, what were they for? The text tells us they were for the purification of the Jews. That was prescribed under the law. That was water that they needed to wash with. So Jesus took the water and turned it into wine. And the wine that Jesus created from that water was superior in taste to what had previously been served. Now, I am not a connoisseur of wine. I have no experience with it. I've never tasted it. But according to John's account, it seems that everyone knew that the old wine is better than the new. But that was not true with the wine that Jesus created. The master of the feast said that what Jesus created was better. In other words, the new was better than the old. And even in this miracle, I believe Jesus was demonstrating that the new covenant was superior to the old. The inner life and cleansing of the Spirit would negate or end the ceremonial washings that were required by the law. You know, most people who have grown accustomed to a certain order of things are content with it, and they don't automatically prefer what is new. When you and I are familiar with something, we know what to expect, and we know what is expected of us. When something new comes along, then those expectations are upended, they're turned upside down, and we often feel uncomfortable. We feel vulnerable. You know, that's especially true when the status quo has remained the same for a very, very long period of time. And that's the way it had been for the Pharisees. Their daily activities and their religious observance were based on a formula that had developed over centuries. They had an established expectation of what the kingdom of God would look like. They had a system of classification for people, for activities, for social contacts and for so many other areas of life. And because they had developed their own system of righteousness, they did not, as a group, desire the new wine of the Spirit that Jesus was offering them. Now, as you think about your own life, don't you find a certain level of comfort and security in the familiar? I'll be honest with you, I do. 
And surely we mustn't be enamored with what is new simply because it's new. Some people are like that. Oh, it's new. It's got to be the latest and the greatest. There are many supposedly new things being introduced into the church, into the body of Christ, even things that carry the name Christian that are contrary to what God has told us in his word. And those things need to be rejected. So what about you? Are you still trying to put a new piece of cloth on an old garment? Are you trying to live a new life in the power of your flesh? Have you embraced this new gospel paradigm? Have you been willing to taste the new wine of relationship and discover that it really is better than the old wine of rules and ritual? Living under the law brings only condemnation because we know there is no way that you and I can live up to God's holy standard. Have you accepted the new robe of righteousness that Jesus offers you? And that robe, by the way, isn't based on your worthiness or mine, because we are all unworthy. Instead, it is based on his love and his desire to live within your heart and mind to transform you and me from the inside out. In each of the incidents that are recorded in this chapter, Jesus is reaching out to meet the inner needs of the inner person. The healing of the paralytic, the invitation to Levi the tax collector, and the discussion about fasting are all about entering into a relationship with Jesus. And as a result of their choice to accept Jesus' offer, each one of those that I mentioned embarked on a new path of life. The love and the acceptance they received from Jesus changed them profoundly at the core of who they were, the core of their being. And you know something? If you accept Jesus' offer, it will do the same for you. You will discover a new purpose for your life. Instead of trying to live a good life and hoping God will approve of that, you will now live in the presence of the bridegroom. Your good works will be motivated not in an attempt to gain his approval, but motivated by your inner love for him. And you won't need the law because you will choose to live above it, set free by the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. You will truly understand and rejoice in the gospel paradigm. For Jesus, my Redeemer, Thou art my joy and song, my Savior and my solace when griefs around me throng. O Jesus, my Redeemer, my song shall be of Thee. No other friend so constant, no friend so dear to me. I trust in Thee, my Savior, my faithful friend and guide, for Thou to me art dearer than all on earth beside. O Jesus, my Redeemer, my song shall be of Thee. No other friend so constant, no friend so dear to me. My song and my rejoicing while in this world of sin, my song and my rejoicing the heavenly gates within. O Jesus, my Redeemer, my song shall be of Thee. No other friend so constant, no friend so dear to me.
Do you know Jesus? Is he your Redeemer? Are you covered by his robe of righteousness and walking in obedience to his commands? As the choir sang, there is no other friend who is so faithful and so kind as Jesus is. If you don't know him, you can. He is waiting to receive you as his child. When you place your faith in him as the only means of salvation, he will receive you and make you his child. If you'd like to review today's teaching or share it with someone, you may request a copy. It's available either in print or as a digital audio file. Ask for it by its title, The Gospel Paradigm. Now the easiest way for you to contact us is to use our email address. It is hope at heraldsofhope.org. That's H-O-P-E at heraldsofhope.org. Or call us toll-free at 866-960-0292. Or you can mail your request to The Voice of Hope, Box 3, Breezewood, Pennsylvania, 15533. You can also review today's teaching or listen to archived programs by logging onto our website, heraldsofhope.org. To help this ministry financially, you can send a check by mail, or you can donate securely online at heraldsofhope.org. You can also call our toll-free number, 866-960-0292, to donate via credit or debit card. God's grace, accompanied by your fervent prayers and your generous financial support, will enable the voice of hope to be on the air until Jesus comes in the air. Now don't forget to join me next week for the Voice of Hope as we continue our study in Mark's Gospel. And until we meet again, Soon I'll come to the end of my journey And I'll meet the one who gave his life for me Just be
victory's been won.